We return today to our study through the book of Revelation. So far we've covered in these last two and a half years all the themes except this last theme, which is the grandest of all, the theme of heaven. We began by looking at the opening pages of Revelation where we studied the sovereignty of Christ in his church. And that took us from chapters 1 to chapter 5. In that study, we looked at the letters that Christ delivered to the churches representing the condition of any church in any generation, powerful challenges, powerful affirmations. We then followed the raptured church to heaven and listened in on what we called the first hymns of heaven as hundreds of millions of angels and the redeemed burst into song before the throne of God. Then we moved from there into chapters 6 through 15, which is the largest component of this revelation. We called it the severity of Christ in his chastisement. And we watched as the terrible time of tribulation began. Four horsemen appear, one after another. And while the church is in heaven, the world below has entered a seven-year period of worldwide cataclysmic horrifying disasters as the wrath of God is poured out. We watched oceans turn to blood, demons unleashed upon the world of humanity following this predicted judgment of God. It's also a time we we discovered of unprecedented conversions to faith in Christ for those that hear and believe the gospel of Christ presented wonderfully throughout the tribulation, 144,000 Jewish evangelists doing a remarkable job as well as uh, eventually millions more. We watched as millions of people refused the mark of the beast because of their faith in Christ, becoming martyrs, going to their deaths at the hand of the Antichrist and his government. We watched Babylon being rebuilt as the capital city of Antichrist who seizes the nations and the world by his satanically induced powers. The world finally gets its wish with a leader who provides a one-world global government and a one-world global religion. We watch the Antichrist's grip weaken under the unrelenting barrage of God's judgments and the acts, the bowls, the trumpets, and all of that, and, and the growing frustration of the nations around him. Then as the world scene begins to turn on itself, we watched Christ visibly through the revelation of John return with his beloved. We called that study the supremacy of Christ in his coming. The Antichrist and the armies are defeated by our Lord and we riding with him on our white stallions. Satan is is thrown into the abyss for 1,000 years. We get our word millennium from that. During that same 1,000-year period of time, our imaginations were captured, were they not, by the revelation of John the Apostle as we studied a literal, physical, millennial kingdom with Christ on the throne of David. The millennial kingdom was an amazing time with economies and industries and the arts and education all flourishing under Christ's reign and we, the immortals, reigning with him, serving him. But then as the millennial kingdom came to an end, that thousand-year period has ended, and, and millions we watched form armies to literally try to unseat Christ. They rebel against him. It's hard to imagine, frankly, that, that even though they have a generation of godliness, 
Those who accepted Christ and survived the tribulation enter the millennial kingdom. They marry, they raise families, and generations are raised during this incredible period of time. And those generations further down the family tree do not believe in Christ, even though they have that legacy, even though they they have enjoyed the blessings of wonderful climate change and long life and, and marvelous health and just law, even though they can visibly see, if they take the trip, Jesus Christ in his glory reigning from Jerusalem, even though they have glorified saints, we the immortals, leading them in the, in, in, in the enterprises of earth with sinless perfection as we will be glorified and sinless, as we lead them with grace and wisdom representing Christ, even after all of that, a thousand years of this golden age, when Satan, by the predetermined plan of God, is released from the abyss, he is able to mount an army numbering as the sands of the sea who march against Jesus Christ to unseat him and overthrow we as well, the immortals who reign with him. We watched as with one word Christ slaughtered the armies. The final judgment is swept into place at the great white throne. That's where we left it. After two and a half years, we've studied then the sovereignty of Christ in his church, the severity of Christ in his chastisement, the supremacy of Christ in his second coming. And now we begin our study of what we'll call the satisfaction of Christ in his new creation. We finally made it to these final chapters these chapters on heaven, we finally made it. Some of you thought you'd be there before we got here. <laughs> but we're here. Now let me tell you, I have read books over the last year or two preparing for this study. This is, to me, as a teacher, one of the most intimidating subjects to teach on. Because it literally goes beyond our imagination. And so just in terms of, of, of preparation... And then, of course, getting into the text and knowing it's coming and then studying and then rereading and pulling out commentaries and all of that. Let me just say at the outset, we will have more questions about heaven when we finish than we have now at our beginning. I hope this study, though, provokes you to desire to study heaven further. There is material provided in the scriptures. But I want you to be careful, by the way. Uh, let, me, let me just warn you that, that popular books on heaven often take passages from the Old Testament prophets that are, that are describing the millennial kingdom, and they attribute them to the eternal state. So you end up with nations and kings and races and all sorts of, of problems that I don't find in John's Revelation. And the majority of the prophets in the Old Testament and their uh, revelation... God, through them, describe the majority of it, the millennial kingdom. And we've referred to literally hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament as we studied the the millennial kingdom. The majority of what we know about the eternal state, heaven, comes from, of course, there are 500 references to heaven in the Bible, but these descriptive phrases found in a couple of chapters in the Old Testament and these two chapters in the Revelation John. So we might not have all our questions answered, but we'll have a fresh and new perspective on heaven, I believe, when we're finished. We're going to have this, a similar problem, actually, ladies and gentlemen, 
that we had with the, the kingdom, with the grasping of the idea that we're immortals, perfected, we're reigning with Christ on earth for that thousand-year period of time. That, that was hard enough to grasp. Now we're going beyond a thousand years into, into eternity. But it did provoke our thinking. In fact, I had a number of people responding to me as we studied the millennial kingdom that they used to just think about you know, living here, dying, and going to heaven where they'd spend eternity never considering the fact that in our future is this thousand-year reign on earth with Christ and what that might look like. So as, as we now begin to study the eternal state of, of what we call heaven, we won't have all our questions answered. Have I mentioned that yet? Uh, we won't have all of them answered. But we will be given enough to really provoke our imagination and our thinking. In fact, I'm going to make a statement here at the very outset of our study that might surprise you. In fact, after I say it, I might be tempted to duck behind this solid oak uh, pulpit, which is solid oak for more than one reason. You might think that I'm dabbling in a little heresy because it might be the first time you've ever thought about it or heard it. And so I'm going to begin it begin our study by simply saying this. Our future in the Father's house, the glorious city of heaven, is actually going to be on earth. In fact, I've entitled this series, Heaven on Earth. Now you're thinking, stone him outside the city walls. Not so quick. Some of you look too eager. Give me me some time here. The truth is the average Christian thinks about heaven as a place up there somewhere where a city is hinged upon nothingness, but we should be happy about it because we're going to do a lot of singing. Most believers never consider the implications of what it means when we're told in Revelation that there's going to be a new heaven and a new what? A new earth. Why why does that matter? Why the focus on a new earth before we ever get to a description of the eternal city uh, God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth in fact I I don't want you to look at your text that'll be one of the few times I ever tell you to do that I just want you to listen to me read what you've read many times but maybe you've never heard it with fresh fresh set of ears as for the first time listen then I saw a new heaven and a new earth It is a new universe. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne inside that city, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Where is this taking place? On earth. To what does the new Jerusalem, the city of God, what we think of when we think of that which is composed of heaven, where does it descend? earth. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot begin to discuss an eternal heaven without discussing an eternal earth. They're not the same, but they will be, at this new creation, connected. 
It's even more surprising than that. You will not just be then experiencing the glory of your creator in the heavenly Jerusalem, the golden city of God's presence and throne. You will be experiencing the glory of his creation on a brand new earth. And with that, a new universe forever. So perhaps with some questions in your mind already, let's go to Revelation chapter 21 and begin at verse 1. Then I saw... Stop there. You need to know what that means. This particular phrase, I saw, is used throughout the book of Revelation to indicate chronological progression. That is, we're going to move from one event to the next event. You find these words, these, the same phrase in chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2, chapter 8, verse 2, chapter 10, verse 1. You find it at the beginning of chapters 13, 15, 18, in chapter 19, verse 11. Now in chapter 20, verse 1 and verse 11. And here at this point, we discover this same phrase at the beginning of chapter 21. I say all of that to underscore for you that there are not thousands or even millions or billions of years between events. These are consecutive events with one event following another. Sort of like the consecutive of of Genesis chapter 1. There aren't billions of years in between each verse. It's a consecutive order of events. One following the other. John is, is seeing something happening. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's effectively saying, I saw a new universe. In other words, there aren't millions or billions of years elapsing in order for John to, to see a completed new universe. Revelation 21 and Genesis 1 are in some ways similar. There are no defenses. There are no arguments. There's no, there's no statement of how God could do it. That he has enough power and creative ability to accomplish this. It's simply announced. It's just announced. In the beginning, say it with me, God created the heavens and the earth. Just announced. Believe it or don't. Take it by faith or not. John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Believe it or not, take it by faith or no. God doesn't need and didn't need billions of years to allow things to evolve on earth to the point where they could sustain life for the first time around and he won't need billions of years to create a new heaven and a new earth the second time around. In fact, if you've got problems with Genesis 1-1, you're going to have problems with Revelation 21-1. But if you believe that God created the first universe from nothing... You can certainly believe that God can take the elements of the former universe and create from them a new universe, new heavens and new earth. Now you might wonder why God didn't keep the first universe. What's wrong with this one? Why not refurbish it? Why not clean it up or dust it off? Why, why did he not keep it? What happened? If John sees a new earth being created. What happened to the old one? Well, if you turn back in your Bibles, 10 pages, you have my translation. 10 pages to 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to that sound. Isn't it marvelous? 
that wonderful? Sign of a church headed in the right direction. The pages of God's Word turned. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. The word translated mocker is a word that refers to someone who makes fun of. Someone who mocks. It was used in the Greek language for a child playing with a toy. In other words, the unbelievers are going to make fun of those who believe that somehow God will interrupt the normal laws of the universe and bring judgment. You've got to be kidding. That's silly. They, they treat it, they view it like a child might play with a toy. So that's why you'll see Christians invited on talk shows and the unbelievers will interview them and toy with them and patronize them. And you can almost hear the collective chuckle of the world as they say anything about the gospel. They don't treat them any more seriously than the child should treat a, a, a toy. The world would say that there's absolutely no way that there is a creator God and certainly not one that will judge us. You're just trying to scare us. What, what you need to do is just look around you. Everything's been going on just like it's always been going on. It's called the scientific theory of uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. That is it's the naturalist theory that the same laws of nature have been in operation since the beginning of time. Peter referred to that, didn't he? Unchanged, unchangeable, and they follow a uniform pattern. They've never been interrupted, and certainly not by anything supernatural. Supernaturally, that, that's just silly. I mean, that's, that's like a toy to think of that. In other words, God has not been around for billions of years and he isn't going to show up anytime soon. And for you to believe that is just childish. See, Peter refers to their belief in uniformitarianism. It's just going to keep going like it's always been going. The only problem is, Peter points out something that they've overlooked. Verse 5. When they maintain this, that is this theory, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed Long ago, and the earth was formed out of water by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. God did interrupt the systems of natural law. He did unleash this canopy of water surrounding the globe. He came crushing down, erupting from beneath. And so the warnings of Noah that it's going to rain and flood, and they're going, we've never seen rain. It hadn't rained up to that point. We don't know what you're talking about. That's never happened, and so it will never happen. But it did. God literally brought the water down and from beneath and drowned mankind in judgment. The only people who were saved were those in the ark, Genesis chapter 7. God now warns through the apostle Peter's letter, just as I disrupted the planet I created so that the world was flooded, there is another judgment coming. Look at what Peter reveals in verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, 
kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Look down at verse 10, the middle part. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed, literally loosed. Uh, the, the, the Greek word means that it comes apart. The atoms split, so to speak. With this intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, if you go back to verse 7... You could translate Peter's words, the present heavens and earth are being, they have been stored with fire, kept for the day of judgment. Now, Peter doesn't know then what we know now, but we now know that just about everything about us, is the major elements of our world, are flammable. Just as God allowed the canopy of water to collapse, the reserves of water beneath to erupt, drowning the earth's inhabitants. God has already built into planet earth the fire, so to speak, which he will simply allow to erupt. Think about it. The earth we live on is about 25,000 miles in circumference and 8,000 miles in diameter. The earth, as you know, is, is formed like a hollow ball, the outer shell or crust, and eventually you get to a liquid core that is seething and boiling at the center of the earth. Temperatures there are estimated to be as high as 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, about the same as the surface of the sun. In some places of the earth's crust, the molten superheated elements are near enough the surface and the pressure is so great that suddenly a piece of crust blows apart, usually at some mountain whose roots reach, as it were, into the cauldron of fire. We refer to that mountain as a volcano. And suddenly, millions of tons of, of burning rock and earth and fire shoot heavenward, flames hundreds of feet into the air, emitting this, this uh, stream of glowing red-hot lava, as well as sending a plume of ash high into the air. You may remember if you're old enough in May 18, on May 18, 1980, almost said 1880, none of you are that old, 1980, Mount St. Helens in the Pacific Northwest erupted. It left an area three times the size of the District of Columbia, an utter wasteland. That volcanic eruption, which, which lasted for nine hours, spewed out 13,000 metric tons of gas and rock every single second. Now you talk about pressure, the pressure inside this planet. Perhaps you've just seen the news recently of the volcano erupting in Iceland, right? One article that I read said that it has shut down air travel across Europe. It sent an ash plume more than five miles into the air. World leaders have been forced to govern by phone from airport lounges, this article said. Even world militaries have been forced to alter their flight patterns. This article said the wider fear is that the invisible microscopic particles could clog airplane engines and cancellations are now have become the world's biggest flight disruption since 9-11. That's just one volcano. That's just one volcano erupting. And it shuts down the business of world empires. I thought it was interesting that the same news magazine that I read this article in 
that of course would have scoffed at the idea that these are warnings of a coming judgment of a planet that literally is winding down, destined for judgment. They would probably mock at that and think that's silly. And yet that same magazine, I looked over to the left-hand margin, and there was an article where astronomers were figuring out new ways to come in contact with aliens. Are we reverse or what? We're captivated by the wrong thing. My friend, listen to this. Every hot springs is a warning. Enjoy it, but it's a warning. Every spouting geyser of steam is a sermon. Every volcanic eruption is a reminder that this earth contains a sea of fire and God knew exactly what he was talking about when he promised Noah it would flood one day and he knows exactly what he's talking about when he promises the planet will disappear in a fiery explosion. Earth is literally a ticking time bomb. Mankind, however, ignores it, thinks that somehow we're going to save it, rescue it, whatever, it's going to last forever and and it's all up to us. Oh, no, 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 no. Mankind ignores the warning signals that creation is fallen. Nature, we're told, is longing for the day of redemption. It's groaning. Every time there's an earthquake or a tsunami or a volcanic eruption, it's a message. Are we really ready to leave this planet? Think about the fact that mankind walks around on the outer crust of a planet where he lives and he works and he conducts his business and cares for a family and sends his emails and makes his phone calls and takes our vacations and all the while he's living and walking and working on the crust of a boiling, seething planet which God has actually designed into it to one day literally explode and burn away. That volcano in Iceland is just one more groan. Just one more groan. It's one more invitation to believe the record of Scripture that planet Earth will not last forever. Another one will. A new Earth will. There is some friendly debate among Bible scholars as to whether or not God will destroy the earth completely or just sort of scorch it, burn the surface, and refurbish it. There are some verses that can be lined up on both sides. I would have friends on both sides of this argument. To me, the determining text after studying the verses involved, the determining text is 2 Peter chapter 3, which settles the issue for me. It uses such clear and decisive language to indicate that while God may use the matter and elements of this destroyed universe to refashion a new one, he will completely destroy the universe as we know it. One author wrote, a scientist who's also a Bible commentator wrote, by the principle of mass energy conservation, nothing of the former universe will be lost. God will take the matter which by fire has been reduced to a vapor state and once again exercise his mighty powers of creation and integration, and the new heavens and the new earth will appear, so to speak, from the ashes of the old. Fascinating thought, isn't it? John writes in Revelation chapter 21, go back there, and verse 1, For the first heaven 
That is the atmosphere in the universe as we know it, not the city of God, heaven as we think of it there, has passed away. It's passed away. It's gone. Peter explains how and why. Now, some might suggest that we're admitting defeat, that it would be unfortunate for God to lose earth, this earth, that somehow he's lost if he needs to create a new one. One of the few Old Testament texts in Isaiah that speaks of the eternal state actually quotes Creator God with a, with a totally different perspective than that one. Listen to what God says through his prophet. The New Living Translation paraphrases it wonderfully. He says through his prophet Isaiah, Behold, look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. So wonderful that no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad. Rejoice forever in my creation. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. God's evidently enthusiastic about this coming new earth, the new heavens, the new universe, this new world. John writes in Revelation 21 verse 1 that he sees a new heaven and a new earth. New, the word used by John refers to a new kind of heaven, a new kind of earth. But it is a word that, that informs us that the new creation will have continuity with the old. In, in other words, it's going to be like the old. Stay with me here. It's going, to be, it's going to be different, new, but like the old. It's going to be a new earth, unique. In fact, we've already read in verse 1, there's no more sea. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's going to be related to, similar to, recognizable uh, with the old one. God's going to do the same thing with the earth that he did with our bodies. If we die before the rapture and we go to our coffins, he will one day, according to Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, he will, he will take the dust of those coffins long inhabited by our bodies and he will reconstitute them. There will be a new body glorified, perfected, but it will have continuity with our old body. In other words, it's not going to be something totally different. We won't, we won't in our new bodies have three arms and four legs and one big eye in the middle of our forehead. Those are the aliens people are trying to talk to here in the future. No, no our bodies will be modeled much like Christ's resurrected, glorified body. He had two arms, two legs. He, he talked, he spoke in a language they understood, and he enjoyed grilled fish for dinner. Is that perfect or what? Hmm? He could, however, because he's different. It is unique. Walk through a closed door, appear and disappear, ascend into the heavens. Like him, we will also be recognizable. We'll still be us, only perfected. I'm going to have hair. <laughs> and I'm going to grow it really long. <laughs> now, what we don't think often is this earth. Recognizable, continuity. It's not going to be a square block of purple Play-Doh. It will be like the old, recognizable, but unique. But I want you to consider the fact that the new earth is going to be God's gift to you and me. 
He's so excited about it. You're not even going to think about the old one when you see the new one. It's his gift to us. It will be ours to explore, not only earth, but the universe, to explore, to enjoy, to uniquely harness, perhaps even uniquely cultivate, discover, travel. It is a real place. It will be a magnificently beautiful, refashioned earth. Now let me pause there for a moment. When John writes, back in in Revelation 21, he uses the word earth, a new heaven and a new earth. Now there are three different words used, translated world or earth, that, that do give us some insight here that I think is very fascinating. So let me quickly tell you what that is. One of the words used in the New Testament for earth is the word cosmos. We understand that word. We use that in our English language. That refers to a world system. Typically, that's a negative connotation in the Bible. John tells us not to love the cosmos. He's talking about don't love the world system. It refers to the systems of our world that have excluded God. John used that word when he said the world is passing away. The cosmos The world system is passing away and also its lusts. 1 John 2.17. Another Greek word for earth or world is the word ionos. It's uh, translated or or it refers to an epoch, an era, a dispensation, a period of time with a beginning and an ending. This is the word the Lord used when he told his disciples as they entered and literally would, would see the creation of the church age the epic of time. He told them, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. You could translate that, the end of the age, Ionas. The third word translated earth or world is the word ge. We've transliterated it G in our language. It's a word that refers to a physical earth. This is the world upon which we live. It's a reference to the dirt and, and the rocks and the mountains and the valleys and lakes and it, 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 it's physical. We take that word and we create words like geography, geology. We borrow the Greek idea. This is the word John uses in Revelation 21 when he says a, a new earth. He's referring to a physical planet. There are going to be new rocks, new trees, new rivers. New lakes, new mountains, new everything. That helps us immensely understand that this is a real location. This is a physical planet, a physical address, a real place. Jesus did not promise his disciples in John 14, I am going away and I'm going to go prepare for you a state of mind. He said, I'm going to go prepare for you a... A place, a real place. We often think of our heavenly future as some floating around out there somewhere. Perhaps the golden city of God resting on nothing. But here in Revelation 21 we discover that what Christ is going to do is prepare for us also a brand new earth. In fact, according to what John sees, the heavenly city is going to descend and rest upon this newly created eternal earth surrounded by a new and eternal universe. Heaven has literally come down. 
God will exhibit his glory from his eternal city, which rests upon now a newly recreated eternal planet which he has redeemed. And you know what that means? He's going to fulfill his word. Not only are we longing for the day of redemption, but we're also told that nature is longing, right, for redemption. It's groaning. The groaning will one day cease as a new earth enjoys the glory of God in, in, in all of its perfection and beauty and systems set in motion for the glory of God and for the pleasure and enjoyment of God's redeemed people. Heaven includes earth. Maybe that's the first of our surprises as we study what John the Apostle reveals in his opening words as he talks of the city coming and resting on a new earth. Frankly, the average Christian wonders what they're going to do, right? We're just a little too afraid to ask. What exactly am I going to do? The typical idea of heaven is that it's one long worship service. And if the truth were told, the average Christian secretly feels guilty for not being spiritual, spiritual enough to, to, to look forward to that. You know, what are we going to do after we sing through the hymnal a dozen times? What's next? And Gary Larson, I thought was rather funny, the cartoonist for the far side. I don't know if he's a believer or not, but he sure pictured this typical understanding of heaven in this one particular picture and caption. Uh, he has a man with angel wings, little angel wings, and a halo, and he's sitting up on a cloud. He has the expression of someone marooned on an island with absolutely nothing to do for eternity but play his harp which he's obviously grown tired of and the caption underneath has him saying I wish I'd brought a magazine (laughs) (laughs) the truth is we we in this new world on this new planet in the new city with a new universe can't even begin to imagine what that really means we're going to see a little bit of it as John gives us snapshots and gives us some words But even his words are going to defy our imagination. He's going to talk about the gates being one pearl. We can't imagine that. There's not an oyster big enough to create that. One, because he's using words we understand. And I believe it would be a literal pearl because there's no reason not to believe it. But it just goes beyond our ability to understand one that large. It's glorious. The triune God will be there. The glory of this throne that we've already discussed sitting upon the sea of glass, lightning and thunder, and the visible expression and embodiment of God in Jesus Christ, whom we will see. We could spend eternity with our perfected minds and bodies doing nothing but standing there in His presence, right? But we're told we're going to be doing more. Millions of fellow believers are going to be there. How does that work? How do we fellowship with Him forever? Are we going to just have fellowship with a few people? Are we going to rotate through the whole directory over time? Are there going to be small groups? Big events? I I say that and I'm tongue-in-cheek. It is kind of funny, but we don't know, do we? There are a lot of things we're told about heaven. And I'm going to enjoy studying with you, but not everything is provided. And I think the reason we're not given everything about heaven is because we... In our time-space limitations, 
cannot understand or even perceive. You know, think about it. We, we think we're pretty bright because we talk about our species and what we're going to enjoy, but I think describing heaven, as I thought about it this week in my study, describing heaven to us, whether we'd like to believe it or not, is, I think, like describing the thrill of driving a car for the very first time to a giraffe. He can't get it. He's just going to look at you. <laughs> I'd be like describing the, the beauty of your vacation resort at five-star hotel to a June bug. It'd be like trying to describe the quality of humility to a cat. It's just impossible, isn't it? You can't do it. What we do know is this is the place of our citizenship. Philippians 3.20. This is the place where our names have been recorded. Revelation 20.12. This is the place where our treasure is located. Matthew 19.21. This is the place where we're going to act out upon the rewards received. This is the place where serving Christ on assignments we cannot even imagine will take place and never end. Hebrews 12.28. Now, We've got to go back and at least finish verse 1. There is one phrase that I want you to see, okay? The very end of that verse. There is no longer any sea. Let's talk about that for just a minute or two. And I'll let you go. There's no longer any sea. Literally, no longer sea. It's our word for ocean. Our idea or concept for ocean. Now, why would that be? We're not told, but let me offer a couple of suggestions from what we do know in the Bible. and Some things that we know about the sea. From what I have read, the world we now inhabit is literally a planet covered by oceans. In fact, 70% of our planet's surface is covered by salt water. The average depth of the ocean is about two and a half miles deep. That's big, that's deep, isn't it? The earth, one author said, is now bathed in what we could call God's great antiseptic solution, composed of about... 96% water, 3.5% salt, and then about 0.5% of other things like chlorine, magnesium, and calcium. God literally designed the oceans of our world to purge, cleanse, and preserve it, making it fit to live. Another author wrote, Many of the pollutants and waste we produce get washed out of the soil and into our streams and rivers. Others are deliberately dumped into the rivers. The rivers wash these materials into the ocean where it absorbs, scrubs, and breaks down these pollutants. At the same time, the sun heats the ocean, causing only pure, clean water vapor to float up into the sky, forming clouds which bring refreshing rain back to the land, a continuous cycle of cleansing and renewal. But in the new earth, there will no longer be pollution, no more decay, and no more need for this system of cleansing. Interesting thought, isn't it? Add to this the fact that the ocean has been used by God to divide nations. The continents separated by oceans have made war and invasion difficult. But it's also hindered communion and unity. It's interesting in the Bible that the ocean is God's metaphor for evil. He compares the wicked to the waves of the sea. He uses the ocean to describe Gentile nations who are not in covenant with God. Now, I'm not 
saying that we're just going to take this phrase and, and view it metaphorically. I believe that the new earth will not have ocean. There's no reason to not take that as literally as the first phrases in this verse. But what could this mean? I believe it means that God effectively creates an earth without a need for this kind of cleansing system. He removes the barriers from continents as the topography of earth is changed. He removes that which represents division and rebellion. But keep in mind this thought, as Warren Wiersbe pointed out in his wonderful little commentary on this text. He said this, No more sea does not mean no more water or bodies of water. Consider the fact that the throne of God sits upon a glassy sea. From his throne flows a river, Revelation 22. And that river is going to flow somewhere as it, I believe, cascades in waterfall after waterfall down from the throne of God through the glorious city of God. We think of and we think of heaven where those who die today are going and are there. It will change locations later as we're studying here. It will flow out of the city and into this newly created earth. We have every reason to anticipate a planet with, with a continuum of the old planet being populated with bodies of water. Lakes can be so large that you cannot see across them. One believing author postulated that huge lakes could, in effect, act as freshwater oceans teeming with recreated life, saltwater animals recreated and readapted to live and flourish in fresh water. Now, along its symbolic lines... The symbol of evil and separation is gone. As well as the literal cleansing system of the salty oceans of our world as they will no longer be needed in God's brand new world. This is a brand new world. There is a continuation in many respects, but it is unique. Just like our bodies, there will be continuation. You will still be you and I will still be me, but unique and new. This is a brand new universe. You know, Titus talks about heaven being our blessed hope. You know what it is. But we, we forget the word blessed and we run immediately to hope. It is our hope. It is also a blessed hope. Makarios, that word can be translated happy, jubilant, exciting, wonderful. Heaven is our jubilant, exciting, wonderful hope. Imagine all of this, and we will only scratch the surface of this brand new, brand new world. Well, we're out of time, which is what preachers say when they mean I'm out of material. All right, so stand (laughs) with me. Let's close by just thanking the Lord. Father, thank you for this text of scripture that begins to reshape our thinking. It removes in many ways misperceptions immediately. It causes us to think along different lines. Exciting lines. The glory of heaven. The eternal city. The throne of you our God. Coming to tabernacle among men in all its glory. Stunning. Beyond imagination. The city where we will have a residence, a place, and a world to explore, perhaps even to cultivate, to manage, to discover. 
as our expression of praise to you who finds great pleasure in ours and we in yours. Perfected, sinless, confirmed, secure, even now, forever. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.